This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Today we have as our guest Dr. Natalie Carnes, Associate Professor of Theology at Baylor University and author of the book Beauty. We also have with us Department Chair of Theology here at Dallas Theological Seminary, Michael Spiegel, as well as Dr. Timothy Yoder, Associate Professor of Theological Studies, and Reg Grant, who is Department Chair and Senior Professor of Media Arts and Worship. This is a panel in which they engage on the discussion of the topic of beauty. And we are featuring Dr. Natalie Carnes because she has spent a lot of time studying the area of beauty. The talk seeks to rediscover the nature and the depth of beauty beyond the cultural definition of aesthetic and visual appeal. And we want to show the transforming power of beauty in what can be seen as a transcendental experience like truth or goodness. And as the podcast moves from defining beauty, it then moves to talk, discussing the necessity of the study of beauty in theology and the ideas of reping, representing Jesus in the life of the believer as beautiful. It looks into the history of what beauty is from Plato to Gregory of Nyssa. And finally, we look into learning how to perceive beauty rightly and with the right lens and how beauty can shape how we see the world. It lands by showing how theology can drive one directly into beauty and how cultural apologetics can find itself making appeals to that which is beautiful, so that apologetics isn't just confrontational, but it also can be inviting in the way it asks people to reflect on how they relate to God and how they see the beautiful world that he's created. So let me uh, ask Natalie to start off with, so I just found out that Natalie grew up in the same, basically, region of Texas as I did. She's from Conroe, I'm from Houston. That is a little aside that go Astros. Anyway, um, so, um, you know, when it takes 56 years to win a World Series, you're a happy person. So, uh, um, so Natalie, how, how did you end up in a gig on beauty? <laughs> Well, I've, I've um, shared with some of you that it, it went back a long ways. It actually went back to my undergraduate days. And um, as an undergraduate, I, I began reading postmodern theory. I had a very haphazard education and ended finally my senior year with getting to Plato. And in between, uh, I encountered Gregory of Nyssa. And it was really Gregory of Nyssa's texts and the ways that he spoke about beauty that seemed to me so fascinating because it was also picking up on the power of aesthetics in the way that these postmodern <coughs> theorists were, and yet it was talking about a beauty that calls, a beauty that summons, that has a presence that was evocative and different and fascinated me. And so I wanted to, to learn more about it and pursue what beauty was. And 
as I went on through my education, I discovered this whole lost tradition around beauty, not just in Gregory of Nyssa, but of course deeply in Platonic thought, in um, medieval Christianity, and in, in ancient Christianity, and, um, and that had really started to um, move more into the shadows in modernity. And, um, and I was interested in saying, thinking about how this tradition can speak into our situation and who we are today. So you've talked about uh, a lost uh, discussion of beauty, which assumes that there is a, a discovered or a visible part of beauty. Why don't we talk about that contrast for a minute? What are you talking about when you contrast what we normal, perhaps what we normally think of of beauty versus yeah. this lost element? What exactly are we looking at? Right. Um, so um, when we, the lost element of beauty is the beauty that is one of the transcendental. So that's something like there's. There's truth and there's goodness. Sometimes we talk about unity, and there's and there's also beauty. And these are all like um, they run through all being. They find their final meaning in the one who is being itself in God, and they are linked and yoked to one another. Um, and this became this sort of fell out of favor in modernity for a number of reasons. Um, fell even less out of favor in the 20th century as um, um, art became less interested in being identified with beauty. Beauty became kind of banal. Beauty became associated with um, marketing and, um, um, and with products to make oneself attractive. And, um, and so we, we didn't cease to engage with beautiful things or still have a world full of beautiful things, but we increasingly lost a vocabulary for, for talking about it. And some of that started to change in the 20th century as um, a particularly one theologian, well, two, two influential theologians, Jacques Maritain and Hansers von Balthasar, uh, began in different ways recovering theologies of art and beauty that um, then led to a big sort of um, resurgence of interest, especially in, in the 90s and beyond. So would beauty be thought of as kind of a, a virtue? Would that be the right kind of category to put it in, or would we put it in a different kind of category? Um, so I would, I would put it maybe in a different category, okay. um, that um, beauty can name the visibility of virtue to us, the visibility especially of mercy and charity. Um, but it's it's a transcendental like being and goodness and unity and truth in that it's something that is part of what it means to be created by a good God of beauty. So um, so we say that something there's this. Have you guys heard of this theological idea, the convertibility of being and goodness before? Okay. So sorry, we're going to get into a little theology tonight. Um, but it means basically that something to the extent that something exists it is good and that evil names a deficiency in the existence of a thing right so that to the extent that something is flourishing as what it is created to be it is good and to the extent that it is not like that that deficiency is named by evil this is a way of dealing with um, how a good God creates the world, and yet we say that there's evil in the world. It's called the privation theory of evil. So anyway, 
being is convertible with goodness to the extent that something is it is good and beauty is also convertible with goodness in that way so goodness and truth and being are all different ways of naming dimensions of existence and that beauty shows the full flourishing of something um, in a way that is perceptible to us okay i'm kind of getting definitions on the table i'm going to eventually bring okay. in the others here who are who are here to discuss this with us, but I want to walk through a couple of other things. Um, so when we think about beauty, I mean, I think when most people think about beauty today, perhaps the word they relate to it is something related to aesthetics or appearance or something like that. And I think what I'm hearing you say is, is that there is a dimension to beauty that is far deeper and far more profound than that. Absolutely, it, yeah. And, and, and so, um, uh, we have reduced beauty down to something that actually gets in the way of our perceiving what real beauty is. Am I hearing that? Yes, right? I think that's right, that we have a very sort of diminished context for appreciating beauty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I, so what I'm hoping to do kind of with the rest of our evening so that everyone kind of knows where we're headed is uh, we're going to talk about beauty and aesthetics. We're going to talk about what, I, what I'm going to call relational beauty, may not be the best term, but relational beauty, and then we're going to talk about beauty and worship. So um, that's kind of, kind of three ways to kind of get some hooks into, into things. And I think what I want to do is to ask uh, some of our panelists to um, interact with kind of the way we've set the table here. So uh, now I've been told, Tim, that you're the philosopher in the group. <clears throat> And we've kind of been floating around the edges of philosophy, so I think I'll begin with you. Um, uh, help us think through some of the categories and definitions that we're dealing with here. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, <clears throat> so first of all, I, 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 uh, aesthetics is not is not my uh, my primary focus in philosophy, but it is um, a significant <laughs> interest, and uh, and I think um, one of the things that that bears mentioning is that um, there's a lot of us. I think a lot of a lot of Christian evangelicals. I'm sure not in this room, but but a lot of Christian evangelicals that tend to think that that beauty is kind of one of these peripheral kinds of topics. That they, that we why why should we be wasting our time? We should be thinking about the hard theological topics like soteriology or you know or sin or um, or things something like that. And and beauty is c kind of a waste of time. Or like philosophy, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but I would make I would make this reply, and that is that um, we uh, we certainly could we certainly could imagine a world in which um, we eat and drink and live in, in everything as the world as it is, but without any color or smell or taste or any of those perceptible things that, that give us joy and pleasure. And can you imagine a world in which, like the sandwiches that we just ate, were nourishing and um, uh, filled us up, but they no, no taste, no substance, no texture, no color. What kind of a depressing world would that be? And so the fact that God made a world bursting with color and smell and texture and taste and all of these amazing things, at least suggests to me that 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 um, that this is something that's important to God, and um, 
and therefore important to our reflections. So that's, that's just kind of an opening statement. I think one of, the, one of the things that, one of the questions that I would have um, as we, as in, in light of what has been said already is if we try to um, pursue a kind of deeper theory of beauty, as Dr. Bach was just discussing, um, how, can, how can we do that without, um, without going into what I might call a, sentiment, a sentimental sort of sense of beauty in which beauty just becomes um, a synonym for, for, for um, uh, happy or, or good thoughts, but, but doesn't really have any content of its own, right? If, if beauty is, is refers to things like roses or snowflakes, then, then it's something that we can talk about. But if it's, if it's the synonym for all kinds of pleasant ideas, then it, it kind of loses its sense of meaning and it becomes, in my, I think, kind of sentimental. And that seems to me to be a problem. I have my own, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, so of course there's always the danger of sentimentality, um, but to the extent that there's a danger with uh, beauty becoming sentimental, there's also a danger with God becoming sentimental, right? Because the, in, and we protect against God becoming a sentimental comfort to us, just, just an idea, something that's like our imaginary girlfriend or boyfriend, um, by the, in the same ways that we protect against beauty. And so um, one of that is by drawing back to where it is true beauty is revealed to us. Um, and I take it that is the place where God is uh, most fully revealed to us, which is the cross. Um, and, and then we also, um, do with our bodies the things that the church is t teaching us to do, which helps our bodies become per better perceivers of beauty. Um, and so that includes, you know, um, teaching our body with, with baptism, with, with prayer, and even the ways that we bow our head and close our eyes in prayer, um, with the ways that we embrace one another in worship, with the ways that we go out and care for the marginalized of the world. And those all those practices um, open our senses up in a way that we become perceivers of a beauty that is true to the beauty who's God. I mean, the way that you protect against sentimentality in you know the academy or in academic art is that you uh, learn the artistic traditions and you learn the traditions of interpreting them and you become sort of educated in those. And those are ways of educating a kind of imagination for beauty, that an imagination that's not merely sentimental. But I take it that part of what's so fascinating about Christianity is that we don't think imagination as just some organ that lives in your brain, but that in fact our whole bodies perceive. There's a, a tradition in Christianity of the spiritual senses, which understands the ways that our physical senses can open up to spiritual realities beyond them. And in fact, can begin to live into the spiritual bodies that we a hope for in the resurrection of the dead. And, um, and that the practices of the church and the practices of the Christian life can begin to form our senses and open our physical senses up to um, begin to live into these spiritual senses so that we have capacities for perceiving uh, a beauty that's true to the God who is beauty. Um, I'm gonna ask a question uh, or actually make a statement in the form of a question. So uh, isn't the 
the Christian understanding of incarnation and, and our incarnational theology and incarnational worldview uh, in a way, um, I guess, working against the abstracting of beauty or the sentimentalizing of beauty, as it is with all the virtues. We don't just believe in love or beauty, but we have concrete, tangible experiences with love and beauty, which uh, the incarnation, we don't just think of God, we think of the God-man, the incarnate one. And so, in a sense, there's a, our incarnational worldview is a, um, I, I think, a way to engage some of the major deficiencies in the modern approaches to beauty, philosophically especially. Yeah, I think that's 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 right. I mean that, and especially the way that the incarnation is um, God's descent in mercy to us—that it's God um, coming to those of us who are sick as a doctor to heal us, to be present to us—and that that's where beauty is revealed. And the way that God is a love that goes all the way through torture and death without turning from the way of perfect peace, without being transformed by torture and death, but remains perfect love all the way through it. I mean, that's um, that shows a real strength to beauty that doesn't degenerate into the sentimental. Now, you have a book that has a very long title called Beauty. <laughs> um, and in it, you discuss um, lower beauties and higher beauties. What, what, were, what does that distinction get at? <clears throat> Well, I was interested uh, first in the way that it shows up in, in Plato. So you guys might be familiar with Plato has this ladder for how you perceive beauty that starts with encountering one beautiful body and then you sort of move up the ladder through, um, anyway, through all sorts of things and to you, till you perceive beauty itself. And, um, and so I was interested in that ladder, but then how it doesn't really stay in place exactly in the Christian tradition because someone like Gregory of Nyssa takes that ladder and says that Christ is the ladder. And so then there's this sort of, you don't progress beyond like Christ to Christ. There's a kind of radical equality to, that, the, that the image begins to suggest. But then there's still a sense in which some beauties disclose God to us in a way that is more perhaps profound than other ways. And so, um, so I think that what begins to happen is that the profound beauties begin to cluster around those beauties that disclose to us the God of the cross, uh, that perfect love, and those become sort of end up replacing Plato's version of the higher beauties. So whereas Plato's ladder moves from more material to more spiritual, uh, Christology cuts against that, right? Because God is human and divine. God is material, I mean, God and Christ is material and spiritual. Um, and instead, you get the beauties that are closer to the cross, which come, take us nearer to the revelation of God, and they take on a special kind of importance. Now, another set of terms, like I say, I'm just getting material out here, <clears throat> is the contrast between, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to view these positively and negatively, because I think this is how you, you use them. Um, function vis-a-vis -vis fittingness and disinterest vis-a-vis -vis gratuity. What, what's going on with those four terms? So I'm interested in the conversations about what is beauty and how do you perceive it and what's the right way. So there's been um, 
A school of thought that sort of takes its cues from the beginning of fine arts um, in uh, 17th and, uh, 1700s and primarily, uh, and a little before, uh, where fine arts were formed around an idea of the beautiful. But these fine arts were distinguished from, the from other forms of arts in that they were disinterested, which means that they were divorced from any sort of use or function, right? So um, chair making is not a fine art. It's a craft is how it began to be defined, um, whereas they were, um, they were less differentiated before. Um, and so, um, so fine arts were those arts that aimed at disinterestedness. They, they, were, they were disinterested because they aimed at the beautiful instead of at a purpose or function. Um, and so this idea of disinterestedness became very important in shaping those institutions around fine arts. So like go to a museum, you've got to stand back from the painting. Uh, there's sort of guards like watching, making sure you don't touch it, right? Or you certainly don't kiss it. Or it'd be weird if you prostrated yourself before it, as some people do before icons, right? So, um, but you're supposed to sort of gaze at it. You have a disinterested gaze. And it's a gaze that's supposed to be... Um, kind of scholarly-like, right? It's supposed to be evacuated of desire. And then on the other hand, there's been people who have responded to this by saying, like, no, this doesn't capture beauty. Beauty isn't associated with the evacuation of desire and this disinterestedness. No, beauty is, um, in fact, indexed to function. So if you look at, like, a a farm and the way it's laid out. You can perceive the beauty in a farm not by saying, oh, like, look at the lovely, like, cabbage leaf against the brown soil. No. When you look at a farm, you say, look how, like, well laid out these, you know, crops are and how they interface with one another. And it's the usefulness or the function of the farm that its beauty is indexed to. And so, I, um, and so it, this school of thought wanted to reject um, disinterestedness. And so I was interested in the way that both of these schools have different types of appeal, but neither seem quite adequate to me. And so I proposed instead fittingness and gratuity. And so what fittingness means is that um, you, do, you do look at the context um, of something for beauty, that in fact, the, the context helps tell you, um, it, well, your context is the interpretive lens that you're bringing to see that something is beautiful. So you can do both and both kinds of beauty in a, in a in, let's say, a garden. You can both say, look at this flower and the way that its leaf contrasts with the, the petal, and like, isn't that like stunning contrast? Isn't that beautiful? But you can also look at this, the garden, and say, look at how these different crops, like um, how these different plants are living together in this kind of ecosystem way, and what what a beautiful system. And that you can also look at it and then say, and look at how the community um, gives itself over to the life of this garden, and how these humans, and like, isn't that like doesn't that give you a whole other context for seeing? Or, and then you could say, look at the way that these flowers disclose the beauty of God and the God who cares for every detail of existence. And it's beautiful in a whole different way. And so these, so fittingness is a way that enables you to take seriously different contexts and interpretive lenses for, for, the, for what's beautiful. And it's in fact a quite old tradition in Christianity, this fittingness, um, of, of thinking especially about the incarnation and God's work in the world. Um, theologians would do this. But what's interesting is that it's not just that you're like, oh yeah, it fits, sure, mm -hmm, it works. But instead, when, when something's beautiful, you're, it, it's excessively fitting, it's exceedingly fitting, it's, it's more than is necessary. It doesn't just sort of do the job like a function suggests. It's not just that um, it gets done what it should get done, but it does so exquisitely. 
right? And that it's that kind of exquisite fittingness that um, suggests a gratuity where it's going even beyond um, fittingness um, of a particular context that then makes for something that we call beautiful. Gratuity is? So gratuity is that beyondness. It's mm -hmm. that um, the excessiveness to the fittingness. It's excessively So it's fitting. the elegance of it. Yes, it's, yeah. the, it's that it's the way that it exceeds any particular purpose or function or use. Okay. My cup runneth over. Exactly. Mm -hmm. the, my cup runneth over, yes. Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. Now, Reg, let me ask you a question because, I mean, obviously, <clears throat> the Arts Week is something that, that the department is concerned about. And when I think of beauty and I think of art in particular, whether it be a film or a story or a poem or a painting, whatever it might be, tends, I think, at least by default for us to be on the more aesthetic side of things, generally speaking. But I have a deep suspicion that you have something much more in mind. Am I, am I right about that? Yeah. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, There is a, uh, a mimetic quality to beauty. Okay, now that's a word the, the, that, that it, some of us is, are going to really struggle with. It is, you know the Greek word mimesis. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the idea theologically of mimesis, which basic, basically means a, a copy, a copy or um, an, an imitation, uh, yeah, imitation of, uh, it's not when, when, we receive this, this qualified beatific vision at our conversion when we see Jesus for who he is. And he invites us to life. The mimetic quality kicks in. The idea is that we... It's not like Jesus in his uh, human father Joseph's workshop where Jesus sees Joseph drawing a blade across a piece of wood and Joseph, his earthly father, says, okay, son, now you do it this way. You copy me. You imitate me. You draw the, the blade across the wood in this way. And Jesus watches and he draws the blade. It's not like Jesus in, in the Gospel of John is looking at God the Father and saying, and saying, okay, Father, because, you know, Gospel of John chapter 5 says Jesus never did anything or said anything that he didn't hear or say, see the Father doing first. Uh, so you get the idea that it's sort of like, well, it's like a great big workshop. And God the Father is demonstrating for Jesus how he wants him to act and how he wants him to speak. And that's not it at all. It is that it, it is not copying theologically. It is mirroring. 
So when, when you look at yourself, your reflection in the mirror, and you move, well, which moved first? You know, you or the reflection in the mirror. They're in perfect sync. They're in perfect harmony. And mimesis, theologically, is Jesus in perfect sync with the Father. In all that he did, and all that he said, and not only in all that he said, but in all that, in, in the way that he said it. So, what he prays for us in John 17 is that we may be one even as he and the Father are one. So there is a, at the theological basis for our art, there is a mimetic quality. We want to advance in our mirroring of Jesus Christ to the world through the acquisition of greater and greater facility in our discipline to reveal Jesus effectively in the way that we present in whatever venue, whether it's acting or singing or whatever it is, uh, sculpting, so that we, as perfectly as possible, represent God to the world because we are so united with Christ that our work displays him. That's the mimetic quality, and that is at the core of what we teach in media arts and worship. It is a union with Christ that is ever-growing and dynamic and organic and unpredictable, but that evinces itself through your character because nobody made two Wiltons. I mean, there's one. There's only one. There's only one K. God works uniquely through each one of you to produce his masterwork as you yield yourself to his control. That's what we're after. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> <laughs> so, um, I, 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 like, I like the um, difference between represent and represent. Mm. Um, talk about that a little bit. Well, when we represent something, we can, we can uh, for example, when I was taking, believe it or not, I had five years of opera. You would never know it now. But when I was studying under Mr. Gillis, uh, one of my first... Uh, uh, operatic vo voice teachers, the way that you learned to sing opera back in the you know, 60s and 70s, at least for me, was uh, he would give you an album. In my case, it was Kenneth McKellar, great lyric tenor, Irish lyric tenor. And uh, he was singing Brigadoon. And so Mr. Gillis said, go home, listen to this, and do that. So I would go home and I would play the grooves off of that record. It was a record. And you, you would play the thing, lift the needle, put the thing back, and then you would try to emulate that. You'd try to copy it. You've been around a long time. That's, yeah, well, you and I both, Jack. Look at that hair. Uh, so we, were, we, we, we would try to copy it, and it's imperfect, but you had this perfection of a voice in Kenneth McKellar. And you would do your best to mimic him. That's representing. I'm representing McKellar because I'm copying him. Now, as the technique becomes a part of me and I stop thinking about the technique and the technique takes me over and controls me and I, and I enter into and lose myself in this marvelous voice of McKellar, I begin to represent him. I begin to embody McKellar. That's what the difference is for me between representing and re-presenting. I am re-presenting Jesus to the world in the same way that Jesus re-presented God the Father to the world. And, now, and, and yet there is an identity of you as Reg Grant in that, 
that doesn't exist in the representation. Is that a fair? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's the difference between mask making and mask removal. Mm. Because if I'm representing, I'm wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, this mask looks like Bill Hendricks. You know, I, I go around, I love Bill, and I say, okay, now here, here is, here's what Bill Hendricks looks like to the rest of the world. But if I, if I take the character of Bill Hendricks and I say, no, this is, this is a man who mirrors Christ, and we share that desire to mirror Christ, and I inculcate that, and then what I'm doing is I'm taking the mask off, and I'm revealing who God made me to be. So it's, it's authentic. It's real. The, you know, people have the idea that acting is putting on masks. It's just the opposite. It's taking off masks. And in taking off your own mask, you invite the audience to participate, not just to watch, because they'll watch a masked performance. They'll watch it, and they'll give you applause. But what's uncomfortable for them, and what's, what's integrative to them, is, that, is when you remove your mask, you invite them to take theirs off. And you reveal their vulnerability because you've been willing to be vulnerable to them because Jesus unmasked you. And so they sense and they feel things that otherwise they might not sense and feel. Yeah, I think so. It's an invitation to participation. You cannot afford your audience the luxury of observation. You must compel them to participate. And by God's grace and the power of his spirit, that's what happens when you're real and authentic and you take the masks off. So we've sort of laid the table, so I'm, I'm going to open up, uh, if you start to think of questions, you want to come to the mics, feel free, free to do so. Uh, let, me, let me talk a little bit about the move from aesthetics to what I would call relational beauty, because I think this is, um, this is an important move as well. It, it, strikes, it strikes me that, <clears throat> that part of what your book is getting at and part of what you're getting us to wrestle with is that there is a surface beauty that a lot of people interact with and identify primarily as beauty. And then there's, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna coin a phrase here, there's a beauty beauty. There, there, there's a beauty behind, underneath, over, under, around, and through that that is really um, what life is about and the way God made us. Um, yeah. I, um. So it's, that's an important question. Um, I, I've been thinking about what Reg just said and um, the, about the masking and unmasking. I just want to say something about that first, is, which is just that it reminds me of um, the promise that though we see now through a mirror dimly, then we'll see face to face that this, there's in some ways this unmasking is a kind of vision of our eschatological hope. Which, have you guys ever seen Tree of Life? Mm -hmm. And at the end, and the kind of like eschatological scene at the beach, you notice there's like a mask that's uh, floating down in the, the waters. Talk a long time about yeah, it's what a rich movie. Um, but about the, the question of um, surface beauty and beauty beauty. <laughs> um, <clears throat> So I know when we talk about the ling when we talk about beauty, the language that we're often sort of tempted into is inner and outer and surface and beneath. And I recognize that this these words do important work, but I think that they can also mislead, and they can end up leading us into a kind of um, 
I don't want to say hatred of the outer, but I'm thinking that the outer doesn't really matter. They can tempt us back into Gnosticism. We're always being tempted back into Gnosticism. And I prefer instead to think about different um, interpretive lenses that we can get. And so I was talking with this um, with um, Tim's class earlier today, where um, it's one way to say to to think about this is to say Mother Teresa is beautiful on the inside, but Miss America is beauty beautiful on the outside, and we don't want Miss America's beauty because it's outside beauty, but we want Mother Teresa beauty because it's inside beauty. I I prefer instead to think that we need to learn how to see the beauty of Mother Teresa better. Right, and there's some some photographers are really great at capturing the way that the body is not just a veil that um, keeps us from seeing the soul, but the body is in fact a picture of the soul. That the body discloses to us um, the soul in the way that Mother Teresa, in some photographs, you can see just the light from her eyes and the ways that she looks at people and tends to people, and you can see the love, and that's beautiful, and. Um, I think part of the problem is the ways that we often are trained into looking at people is we're trained to looking at them um, divorced of any sort of context and in this kind of formal manner or a, a kind of um, through sexualized lens or something like that, that um, is a very sort of narrow and distorted picture of beauty. So instead of thinking of inner and outer, I guess I prefer to think of um, having a, a richer interpretive lens or being ourselves transformed in a way to better perceive the beauty, the truer beauty, the beauty beauty. So you're, thinking of, so you're thinking of an integrative beauty in which you don't disconnect one piece of the person from the other per piece of the person. That's right, that's right, where uh, we can see someone's, where we learn to see someone's beauty um, by looking at them, mm -hmm. you know, um, and in looking at them. And of course, that's going to be informed by more than just uh, our eyes. It's also going to be informed by our histories and things like that. But um, but that it's not something where we have to close our eyes in order to know someone's true beauty. All right. Um, so um, how do you, how do you um, encourage us? to find that other path? <clears throat> it's a simple question. Yeah, sure. Good, well I can tell you in three simple steps. Okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, and the organ plays at the end, correct? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> if only, man, then I can really sell some books, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, so I, I mean I think that the, the way of learning to perceive that beauty is a way, it, it's impossible to become a better perceiver of beauty without becoming um, transformed. We have to be transformed. And the ways we're transformed are the ways you all already know. It's by, um, it's by loving the marginalized, it's by loving our neighbor, embracing our enemy, it's by um, being baptized, it's by uh, becoming peacemakers, it's by mourning, it's by, I mean, you all know it, you're Bible scholars, um, you have the Beatitudes, you have the Ten Commandments, um, and those are things that are not just uh, 
a, a series of duties that we need to check off, but those are ways that we are transformed so as to become more like Christ and to perceive the beauty that Christ perceives. All right, I'm going to ask my theologians. I've been, they've been sitting there. I'm see one of them taking copious notes. And, <laughs> and then there's our department chair who's just been... He's writing a poem. Gazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's inspired. <laughs> so, so um, Michael, tell us a little... I, I, I hate formal titles. Um, so... Um, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, about what what you're hearing, and I guess the question I want to ask is: um, sometimes I have the feel that the way in which we teach, which emphasizes oftentimes the conveyance of a lot of information, gets in the way or risks getting in the way of this kind of personal development. So you're you and I both work in in different spheres in which we're busy doing a lot of content. I mean, I, I don't think of a genitive as beautiful. Um, and so uh, uh, it might express a beautiful thought, but in and of itself, it's, it doesn't knock me over at night or even in the morning or at any point in the 24-hour day. So, um, so how, how do we wrestle with um, kind of the the pursuit of theology mm. in a way that draws us into beauty. That's great. Um, I'm reminded of a quotation I stumbled across from uh, Hans Urs from Balthazar. And he, it was in the context of Karl Barth and his theology. And he had this just a simple line that the theology of Karl Barth is beautiful. And I thought about how is how is the theology of someone beautiful? How do, how do we, what makes a theology or a theological system beautiful? And uh, you start to think of, you know, your traditional definitions of beauty or descriptions of beauty as there's proportion and balance and there's depth and it invites you in, you participate in it, it accomplishes everything it's meant to accomplish. It sounds kind of stale to me. But um, when I think of uh, trying to define then beauty, which is, beauty is, draw blank, and you draw blanks. So I think in terms of, um, I love how your book ends, especially with taking it from the anthropological to the Christological to the eschatological. Mm -hmm. And you can trace this through, even what we've been talking about here, mimesis and, and mirroring. You know, that, this is Imago Dei anthropology, which is Christology, who is the image of God. And it always gets us to ultimately the glory of God. If I, when people ask me what is theology, I say faith-seeking understanding. Okay, it's just a simple little definition that you can dig deeply into. If I think of beauty, I think beauty is the glory of God, which is reflected in humanity, humans' proper functioning as the Imago Dei, but deeper than that, it invites you into something, it invites you into a trajectory of glory. And I really love the patristic emphasis on uh, this is not stasis. Mm -hmm. This is dynamic. This is ever growing toward and never fully reaching the, mm -hmm. the infinite glory of God and the being of God. And if you think of God as beauty, you're being invited into something that has no end. Then you start to think of all of your ologies with theology and the narrative and the, the beginning point and where we're at and where we're headed in the redemptive community. And I think it's all of it. It's laced with this 
not abstract, but incarnated sense of beauty. So I think um, it's inviting devotion, it's inviting uh, reflection, contemplation, all of these things that turn theology from this stale thing into something that's lived, something that is transformative. Tim? Okay. Um, I was thinking in things a little bit differently, um, although I like that. I thought it was very good. Um, but uh, I, teach, I teach apologetics, and, um, and so another, another aspect of, of our Christian life and service is to be defenders of the faith and to, um, to be God re representatives and ambassadors to an unbelieving world. And, um, and I think traditionally, and especially in a setting like this, given all the content that we learn and, and teach and read and, and study, we tend to think of apologetics as very intellectual. Uh, and I'm an evidentialist, so I like that. I like the, the yeah. arguments for the existence of God and the reasons why Jesus rose from the dead and, and, um, and all the theodicies that we can do to, to respond to the problem of evil. I like all that stuff. But I think there's another aspect of apologetics that involves, and it's what I call it, I'm sure it's the best way to call it, but I call it a cultural apologetics in which we use the arts and... Um, and music and, and other human practices that uh, more artistic sorts of things to make the gospel attractive. So instead of trying to persuade somebody with um, a strong argument or a set of facts, you try to make the gospel attractive. And I think we, you know, I mean the, the, the grand cathedrals and the beautiful works of ours like Handel's Messiah um, uh, do that and, I, and there's something there's something very powerful about that. There's a, there's a line, and I, can't, I won't be able to quote it exactly because I didn't know I was going to be up here tonight, but, um, <laughs> but uh, in Chinua Achebe's book, uh, Things Fall Apart, um, which is about uh, missionaries working in Africa, and it's, it's, a, it's a tragedy, it's a sad book um, of, of uh, what they perceive as the injustice. But there's one, there's one part in that where this one uh, African um, comes to faith and he describes, and I can't, I can't, like, I can't quote it exactly, but he, he hears the, the hymn and there's something about the hymn that, that um, sinks into his heart the way that a downpour sinks into the, the cracks in the ground and, and it, just, it just changes him, right? The, the beauty of this hymn has this powerful spiritual force and I, I, I think that, um, so I think that there's, there's a place for, for this kind of beauty um, in, in even our, in our apologetics and trying to um, make the gospel attractive in a way that, that promotes deeper reflection on the, the eternal truths of the gospel. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.